This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Stewart, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, I'm very glad to be joined by Harvey Schwartz. Harvey is the firm's president and co-COO with David Solomon. And before that, he was our chief financial officer. And before that, co-head of the securities division. Harvey, welcome to the program. Jake, great to be here. So let's start, Harvey, with the evolution of your career. It's a very interesting story. You weren't someone that people would necessarily have pegged as a future executive of Goldman Sachs. Share with us a little bit about who you were growing up. I grew up in New Jersey, and I definitely consider myself a Jersey kid. I'm a huge fan of Bruce Springsteen, and of course, for any of my other fellow Jersey folks, Southside Johnny, but you got to be pretty deep in the weeds to know the Jersey bands. You know, like lots of kids, I had my challenges. When I was 14, my mother passed away, and you know, in retrospect, that was pretty destabilizing for me as a young person. And after that, my father and I both struggled. And I would say overall, I found, again, like lots of kids, my high school years were pretty difficult. And in the end, I think it's fair to say I just wasn't the best high school student. I think you would have said at the time, pretty unlikely I'd be sitting here talking to you today, Jake. That's for sure. So how did you make it out of high school and on to college? You ended up attending Rutgers. How did that happen? Well, after high school, I didn't go to college right away. I took off a year. That wasn't some designed gap year. That was basically because I'd done so poorly in high school, I didn't apply to any colleges. And I took a job as a trainer in a gym. Now, sitting here, I'm sure that's shocking for you, but you have to really make an incredible mental image leap of faith because, you know, I had hair, I was thinner, I was fitter, but you have to imagine that I was actually a trainer at a gym and came in contact with a client, Linda, and we struck up a friendship. I didn't know at the time that she was becoming a significant mentor of mine, just a friend and a client. But she was really pushing me on, what are you doing? Are you applying to colleges? And at that stage, you know, with her encouragement, I applied to a number of schools. I applied to Rutgers in New Jersey. Linda was a Rutgers alumni, so we had lots of conversations about that. And when I would see her, she kept saying to me, did you get in? Did you get in? Did you get in? And you know, this is prehistoric times. We'd have to go to your mailbox. And look, for, those look of, for the fat envelope, right? Correct. And not the case for me. So I go to the mailbox. I get the thin envelope, thin envelope from yeah. Rutgers. And, and I show up at the gym. And she says, you get in? I said, no, I didn't get in. And this is incredible. As an alumni, and she's not a powerful alumni. She's just a person with interesting care. She takes it upon herself to call the university and say, you've made a mistake. I really want you to spend time with this individual. I want you to interview them. And she arranges the interview. I go down, I interview. And looking back upon this today, as many times I told this story, it's always shocking to me what Rutgers did. Rutgers changes their mind in terms of the decision around me. And I go to college. And that's the path. And if it's not for Linda... Not for that intervention, never would have happened. Yeah, and it's an educational intervention. Without right. Linda right. showing that interest, just as a warm, loving, caring person, for sure, I'm not here with you today, Jay. So how did you find college once you got there? Well, in addition to having my challenges when I got out of high school, I think I really specialized in insecurity. But I showed up, I was quite nervous about could I even perform because I'd never really applied myself. And I found my experience at Rutgers, and it really started with my first class it's a large classroom. It's called Lucy Stone Hall. It still exists today. I remember walking in there, sitting down in my first economics class. I sat in the back row where all the other insecure kids went. You were probably a front row kid. I hope not to get called on. No, I sat in the back too. Yeah. Oh, well, that's why we have a kinship. And so there I am in the back row. And because I was insecure, I probably overapplied myself. 
But more importantly, I really do recollect it being the first time that I really learned for myself that I liked learning. And I quickly fell in love with economics because of the emphasis on math, finance, the social component of how you think about economics and its interaction with society. And so I became an economics major. Rutgers, and I don't know how much you know about it, Jake, but I didn't realize at the time for sure that in some respects, I'm representative of what their mission is. So today, they have nearly 50,000 undergraduate students. 80%, approximately 80% receive some form of financial assistance. And 20% of the students today are the first in their family to go to college. It's an incredible mission they're fulfilling. And with it's lots the American of American dream, right? That's, yeah, that's and, what and, the American dream is supposed to be. And that's what they're doing every day. Yeah. So how did those early experiences tie back to who you are today? And how much of you, I guess in an obvious way, stems from that part of your life? Well, I think all of us are a function of our history. I think Rutgers was the first place where I started to develop my own sense of confidence. And I think when all of us look back on our lives, there's always critical moments of engagement with other people. I would say that I don't think I was aware of it at the time, but... If you take, for example, Linda's role with me, really, that's probably one of my first mentors. You know, we all toss around the word mentor. And when you think yeah, around the it, word, what does it mean? What does really it really sometimes? mean when it's truly most effective? And I think it's got a couple of building blocks. It's about trust. It's about people willing to invest in other people in a way that actually may require them to take risk. And it's also a real burden on the person being mentored. And I think when those three things come together, it's quite valuable. And I think the second one I mentioned, I'm not sure there's a lot of people out there in the world that would, and be great if there were more, actually kind of grab a young person by the collar and say, no, 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 you are good enough to be in this school. And I have so much personal confidence in you that I'm actually going to do my best to reverse a decision. And if I had to give you one singular takeaway, I would say, as a mentor, and someone receiving a lot of mentoring during the course of my career, I would say it's people's willingness to take risk investing in other people that is the defining characteristic of an effective mentor. After college, when did you begin to get a sense of what your path might be? So it's a fantastically interesting question in terms of the path, because the path implies that I had some sense of the directionality of it. I would say I came out of Rutgers less with a path, more with a sense of interest in that finance, economics. I couldn't sit here today and tell you Wall Street was interesting to me because I really knew nothing about it. I'd never been to Wall Street. The first time I walked down Wall Street was after I graduated and I was amazed it was so small and short. And so I was pretty naive about the world of finance. I knew I had interests that were economically centric and built off the things I'd studied at Rutgers. And I would say in a clumsy way. I found my way to Citibank. I was at Citibank from 89 to 97, and I had really three roles. I started in operations, or what Citibank would refer to as the back office. Then I was a credit analyst. Then I moved into the risk management side of the firm, working with clients and doing basically derivatives and risk management solutions for petroleum, metals, and mining sector clients in the Western Hemisphere. And then I showed up at Goldman in 1997. Both at Citibank and at Goldman, the people I worked with were willing to give me new opportunities. I started out in the commodity business, but then there was an opportunity in foreign exchange. Then in 2001, when we went to restructure 
fixed income sales. I became a co-head in fixed income sales. And then I worked in banking for a few years. Then I came back just around the crisis and worked as co-head of the securities division. And then I became the CFO in 2012. And nothing about that path was prescribed for me. The day I showed up in 1997 at Goldman Sachs, I had no idea about all those future career twists and turns. And if not for people, again, being willing to take a chance on me, give me opportunities, and really the opportunity to grow as a result of being challenged, we wouldn't be sitting here today. So how did that path, Rutgers, City, working your way up to Goldman, contribute to your understanding of leadership and what it means to be a leader Sometimes that word gets thrown around. It feels kind of hollow. What does it mean to you when you think about your real-life experience and how you ended up here? I shared the story with you about Linda, but at various junctures in my career, I could identify other individuals who have invested in my career, taken a risk, given me new challenges. Every one of those junctures, someone who's a leader is taking a risk on me to give me a new opportunity. And It's not about the risk as much as it is the willingness to invest their support. You could call it leadership. You could call it being a mentor. But what they're really doing is taking the time to understand your capabilities, weaknesses, and looking at that collection of skills and saying, you know what, this might be a stretch, but we're going to invest in this individual because it's good for them, it's good for our people, it's good for the firm. And as a leadership group... When we think about strategy of the firm and how we think about our clients around the globe, we think about how to deliver the best value to our clients by investing in our people. And really at the core, that's what leadership's about. So a lot of people when they talk about leadership talk about certainty and strength. You throw the words around like insecurity, weakness. So When you look back, what are the times where you were able, despite that, to step outside of your comfort zone, buck the advice you were given, take on a new challenge? How does that happen? The path's unpredictable. At those points of it being unpredictable, how with confidence do you move forward? And I'll just share one with you, and it relates to an interaction I had with Lloyd, and it's a very short one, but in early 2000s, I was asked to go in and co-head fixed income sales. I knew very little about fixing up sales. It was a very important restructuring. And after a fairly long period of time, several months, I think it's almost fair to say I hadn't made one single meaningful decision. My reluctance was just a state of discomfort. I didn't feel the confidence. It might have been I didn't have all the data. I hadn't spent enough time. But part of it was a little bit of self-imposed inertia and nervousness and anxiety. And I had a conversation with Lloyd, and we were talking about the strategy of the business. And again, I was managing the client side of the business in fixed income. And Lloyd said, you know, it's okay to make a mistake. Very empowering. Because what he's really saying in that very short one-minute exchange is, I trust you're not going to make a big mistake. He didn't need to say this. He wasn't going to let me make a big mistake. But he was really encouraging me to take risk and have the confidence and trust my own judgment. And that was the first larger job of managing people I had at the firm. So before that, I'd managed maybe, I don't know, a group of 10 or 15 people. And here I was co-heading a business, which had a couple hundred salespeople in it. And I was a little overwhelmed by the transition of going from a smaller position to a position of larger leadership. And Lloyd, given his experience at the time, he understood the intellectual and emotional dynamics of that transition for me. And he kind of liberated me a bit. Today, again, sitting here, it's a one-minute thing, but I remember it very vividly. 
So, Harvey, when a lot of people think about Wall Street, they think about what the executives do in their spare time. They think about tennis, golf, squash, things like that. You're into martial arts. You have a black belt in karate. When did you get interested in that? How's that helped shape your development on Wall Street? For the record, Jake, I do play golf. It's just that I'm a horrible golfer, so I don't talk about that either. Are you a golfer, by the way? Uh, not a good one. No. Okay. You're not a black belt, right? No, I'm okay, definitely fine. not. So that we've covered not your even resume. Close. Yeah. Well, you know what? As I mentioned, coming out of high school, I sort of, uh, like a lot of young people, I think I specialized in insecurity. I think that was like my core competency. I actually think it's one of my core competencies today. And part of that, I think, was simply stated, I kind of wanted to feel tougher, maybe, you know, when I was 17, 18. And I was super fortunate. It's funny you mentioned squash before because I'm not a squash player. But when I was working as a trainer at the gym where I met Linda, it was actually a squash club. And they had a martial art class. And I inquired about it. And just very luckily, I happened to meet an extraordinary martial art instructor. I was 18. He was in his early 30s. His name is Chris. We're still friends today. Fantastic instructor, by the way. He's been instructing his whole life. And what I quickly learned was that the martial arts wasn't about feeling tougher or more masculine or however you want to phrase it. And it didn't necessarily make me feel more confident. But in the process of doing it, what I learned... I think really for the first time in my life, which maybe will sound surprising to you, but it'll give you a sense of how I grew up, it was a little bit about priorities. And a lot of people will say things about the martial arts like it teaches discipline. I suppose that's the case, but for me, and I'll just give you one snippet, I was taking a lesson with Chris, and in most martial arts that are taught in America, there's various belts, like a white, yellow, blue, green, you know, and you move on and become a black belt. I was a white belt. And there are certain basic punches you have to do. And there was one basic punch that I just really wasn't very good at, mostly because I wasn't flexible. And so I was taking my class with Chris. He said, yeah, do that second punch. I did the punch. And I said, yeah, this one doesn't feel so good. I just, I don't, I just think I'm not going to do this one. Let's just do the other ones. And again, this is a, more a statement, I think, about my, maybe my immaturity at the time. And Chris really calmly looked at me. And he said, well, you don't have to do that punch. And you can also be a white belt forever. And I will tell you, I thought to myself, well, that's not very attractive. So I remember practicing that punch, I mean, millions of times because it was so hard for me. And I think what I realized just from doing that, and it became my best punch, by the way, just as a, as a result, I think just going through that process, what it taught me was, I don't know about discipline, but persistence. And for me, it also taught me, in a lot of ways, how I kind of tackle problems today. I think I sometimes tend to torture my team, doing things again and again and again. Things don't always naturally come that quickly to me or easily to me. And repetition is a way in which I practice and learn. And actually, it's a way I manage my stress. And I think you could call it discipline, but I think I learned persistence and repetition from doing the martial arts at a very early age. Unfortunately, I'm 53 now, so I'm not so flexible. But, but you can still but throw that punch? I can, actually. It's a pretty good punch. I'm not going to do it today. But, uh, you know, for a 53-year-old guy, actually, probably I have uh, reasonable talents. But I was really much better when I was in my early 20s. But that's how it framed me as an early age. You're still involved, obviously, at Rutgers, an undergraduate life there. You talked to a lot of students. You're a role model for a lot of the employees here. You mentor a lot of younger employees. What are the main lessons you try to communicate with younger people about maturing and growing up in the workplace and in their lives? Well, I think every generation has its challenges, and the generations that precede them have to help them work through those challenges. The challenge for young people today, 
whether I talk to them at Rutgers or whether I talk to them here at the firm, is this notion of millennials. Because it's such a generalization. A lot of what gets attached to the word millennials, the emphasis on the negative, not on the positive. And I think that being bombarded with that energy isn't good. If we lean more into what that generation brings to the table in terms of creativity, intelligence, wanting to contribute back to the world and have a positive influence, which are all the really incredibly positive things about that generation. And I'm not sure my generation was as thoughtful about contributing as this current generation. I think those things should be celebrated. I'm the parent of a millennial, and I don't even like the way they've attached negative energy to the parents of millennials, because I like to think I'm a better parent than that. Maybe not, but I like to think I am. One thing I also think, and again, my own personal reflection, this generation of young people, very often when you talk to them, they want a path. They almost feel like there should be a design path. Now, maybe because of my background, I didn't think there was a design path, and they put a huge amount of pressure on themselves. And I think, one, I would say, hey, get this notion of millennial out of your head because you're an individual and you have to live your life in a way that's satisfying to you and however you define that. And two, understanding that career paths, whether it's mine or yours, and I suspect you never thought you'd be sitting here. A little choppy, a little choppy. You never thought you'd be sitting here today at Goldman Sachs having this conversation with me. And so understanding that the path is not defined is actually part of the best part of the path. And it may not feel that way day to day or year to year, and it will be turbulent. And I think actually this generation is so talented, and I'm so thrilled that I don't have to compete with them at their age, that I think if they actually took a little pressure off themselves, they'd find the path a little easier and it might reveal itself even a little more quickly. But I will say this, if you want to feel better about the world, there's lots of cynicism in the world today and lots of things to not feel great about. But if you ever want to feel great about the world, you come to a dinner with 10, 15, 16 Rutgers students with me, and when you see the energy and the hope and the enthusiasm in their eyes, you'll feel better about the world. In your new role, you're back out talking to clients. You, know, you started off, as you said, client-facing here, ran some sales operations. But as CFO, you end up getting a little bit focused internally. As you're talking to clients today, what are the biggest challenges they're facing, and how are we helping them find solutions to those challenges? In short, Jake, the challenge is really about growth. Broadly speaking across the globe, the global economy has been growing at a pretty moderate pace. And as a result, we've seen the unprecedented use of quantitative easing, whether it's in the United States, in Europe, in Japan, governments struggling to create economic growth. And even though we're in a better position today than we've been in a while with GDP in the U.S. running around 3%, same in Europe, broadly speaking, all of our clients are challenged by how do they create growth and opportunity for their companies or for their efforts. And by efforts, I mean... In a QE world, for clients in our asset management business where we're helping them achieve their objectives, how do they earn returns in basically a zero interest rate environment? In investment banking, how do our corporate clients think about creating growth? Again, where top-line growth in most industries is challenged, and in certain sectors, technology is viewed as a threat that could completely disrupt their industry. And you've seen the market reaction to... Amazon Whole Foods, and what's happening in retail. But I would say, fundamentally, in all parts of our business, the challenge for our clients is how do they create value and how do they create growth? 
And Goldman Sachs is uniquely positioned to provide clients with advice and content and value. But I would say that's the fundamental challenge for our clients. So let's go a little deeper on technological disruption. You mentioned that as a key factor. Thinking about the sets of clients we have and thinking about the industry we're operating in, how do you see that technological disruption playing out in our sector and in how we serve clients? So you could debate a lot of things, I think, that are happening in the world today. But I don't think there's any debate around the long-term secular trend around technology as a force. The only thing people can debate is the speed of it. Now, for our clients, this is obviously a huge issue. I mentioned it in retail, but everyone is trying to think about how to harness technology in a way that's most effective. It raises lots of other questions, like how do you think about cybersecurity? And if you really want to think about call the last decade or 15 years of sweeping changes across the globe, one of the most sweeping changes is the adoption of technology post the creation of the smartphone, the whole change in behavior. At Goldman Sachs, technology has been critically important to what we've done, and more than 25% of the firm's resources are, we refer them as engineers. That's likely to keep growing. And that's about making sure that we leverage technology in the most effective way, just like our clients are in their industries, but it's also about how do we interact with our clients. And Marcus, as an example, we wouldn't be in the consumer lending business if it wasn't for the fact that consumers are shifting to transacting and borrowing online. I don't think Goldman Sachs would have thousands of branches. I don't think we would have been competitive in that space with the traditional providers. With no history, no expertise. No, right. and also, you know, look, we're not going to go out and build thousands of branches and commit to that infrastructure, there are other people better positioned to provide that. But as consumers adjust and start using technology as a mechanism for borrowing money, we realized we had the risk competency, we had the technology competency to deliver to the consumer a better product. It's more flexible. It's more cost effective. It's easier to use. And so that's how we'll think about technology in our clients. And in some cases, it'll be existing clients. And in some cases, like Marcus, it'll be a whole new area of clients that we otherwise wouldn't have felt we could provide differentiated value. But because of technology and the shift in consumer behavior, we can provide differentiated value. So when you think back on your career in the markets, what are some of the surprising things to you as we sit here today? Well, as we sit here today and think about markets, the most surprising thing has to be reliance on monetary policy relative to fiscal policy post the financial crisis. I think coming out of the financial crisis, the reliance, and I think the Federal Reserve, for example, in the United States, I think has done an extraordinary job fulfilling their mandate and helping the economy grow. But I don't think we would have all sat here, certainly prior to the crisis and immediately after the financial crisis, and thought there'd be such a degree of coordinated and extended quantitative easing. And what that really means is, why aren't we seeing inflation? And I think probably the greatest surprise at this stage for many people around the world is economies are stable. I think if we were sitting here at the beginning of the year, the U.S. wouldn't have felt like it might have 3% growth. China's still growing at close to 7%. But yet, with all that, there aren't significant signs of inflation. But yet, as a result of quantitative easing, central banks own a significant portion of bonds around the world. I think the greatest surprise would be quantitative easing as a tool, but the fact that we're not getting inflation leaves a lot of us scratching our heads. Another thing that market commentators are surprised by is the extended period of low volatility. 
What do you think is behind that period of sustained low volatility that we're seeing in markets? I think it's all correlated to what I just said. The markets aren't solely reacting to monetary policy, but it is essentially the primary, almost the only tool around economic growth that global economies are using at this stage, certainly Europe, Japan, and the U.S. And as a result, quantitative easing has led central banks to communicate very specifically about their policies. Quantitative easing is new. They don't want market surprises. They want to be effective at how they're implementing monetary policy. So we've seen a shift in communication style. The communication style itself is very predictable now. And as a result, market volatility has come down. And it's coming down because it's reflecting that. Historically, it's not a great sign. There's a whole host of periods where when market volatilities have been this low, 2006, 2007, you go back to 1986 before the 87 crash, that's indicated complacency by market participants. I don't think this is a complacent period. If you talk to our clients around the globe, clients are expressing a bit of nervousness and they're actually being somewhat cautious. So I'm not sure that's the driver this time. I think it's more about the long extended monetary policy and low rates. So Harvey, to wrap this up, you okay with the lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Yankees or Mets? That's easy, Yankees. Giants or Jets? Okay, Rutgers. Text or talk? Oh, yeah, I'm obviously a talker, Jay. Godfather or Star Wars? Oh, that's a tough one. Annie's not going to like this. I'll go Godfather. Okay. How long does it take you to get ready for work? Well, there's not a lot of time spent on my hair here in the morning, so I'm pretty speedy. I don't know. It's between 18 and 20 minutes. Most underappreciated quality in a leader? Maybe because it's on my mind, but we talked about insecurity before, and I would say being willing to be vulnerable and, and maybe humble because as a leader, your success is solely dependent by the people around you and Goldman Sachs terminology, the partners you work with. And unless you're open and willing to share that and get help from people, I don't think you can be an effective leader. Most overrated quality in a leader? Well, it'd be the other side of that coin. It'd be uh, arrogance. And what are you reading right now? I just came back from some time off. So I was reading Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, which is an incredible yeah, story. If you haven't read it, you've you got to take it on your next trip or find time to read it. It's fantastic. Harvey, thanks for joining us. Jake, thanks so much. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on October 3rd, 2017. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.